Guys, we looked last week, we're in this series called Life's Ultimate Questions. And uh, last week we started uh, uh, by asking, what is God like? And it was really part one. Uh, we knew that we would have to have a part two. And <laughs> you could do a year's worth of sermons to try to talk about what God is like. Teresa said it. Justin prayed it. Uh, you know it. You know God in certain ways that the rest of us may not know him as. Um, each time in Scripture that God was given a name, um, Jehovah Jireh, um, or whatever name he was given in those places, it's because somebody came to know him in a specific way. And so his qualities and his attributes are too numerous to mention. Like we can't even begin. Uh, but I would hope that if somebody asks you, what's God like? That you'd be able to tell them a long list of things that you've experienced God as in your personal life. Last week we said it takes more than just knowledge that God exists. A lot of people believe that there's a God, but they don't have any personal relationship with him. Uh, not believing God is really no better than just believing that he is there. Uh, we have to put our faith in him and surrender to him and obey him. In a word, we must trust Jesus uh, for personal salvation. So last week we began looking at what is God like, and we said that God is personal, that he is knowable, that he reveals himself to each one of us, that he wants us to get to know him. Like, it's so many people pray for a friend. Uh, I, as a kid growing up, military, we moved to different places. I went to several different schools, and I always hated it. I really did because I was like, man, i got to make new friends. And uh, it's scary, you know, thinking about, you know, being, being alone and not knowing anybody and leaving people that I love and care about behind. But there's always been a constancy, even in the days when I didn't see it and when you didn't see it, that God was there with you, that he was providing for you. He was befriending you and holding you up. And so God's personal. We said that God is one. We know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all work in different roles to permeate our lives and to hold us together and, and keep this world moving. Uh, we said that God is spirit. We know that no one has ever seen God in this, that he is transcendent, that he is omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere all at the same time. He can be with me and you and others and the church in China and all over the globe everywhere this morning and all day, every day. And we said that God is eternal, that before time began, God existed. He existed of his own self, that at the end of time, if we could measure that, it's eternal as well. But God is eternal, that he has changed not, that he's the same yesterday and today and forever, and that he is our holy God, and that he has not fallen asleep on his throne. He has not become negligent over uh, overlooking and overseeing what's happening on earth and what's happening even in your individual life. That that's a personal God. And today we're going to look at four more explanations of what God is like. And uh, we have just a simple, if you have a bulletin, you probably saw the outline on the beginning of that, that God is independent, God is holy, God is sovereign, and God is just. And these are really just the eight that I pulled because I, I want to help try to explain the importance of what these attributes of God are like. And so we'll just jump right in with number one, that God is independent. Every other living being, everything that's created, is dependent upon something or someone. Uh, you take a look at uh, the plants in the office. I mean, they need somebody to water them or they start looking like they do sometimes, right? Um, you think about your dog or your cat or your pet. Um, they are so dependent upon you that if they were left to themselves and they were locked in the home, that eventually they wouldn't be able to fend for themselves, that uh, they would die. 
Uh, we look at uh, the trees and the earth itself and the grass of the fields. We look at the flowers. We look at our babies and our children and our grandchildren. We look at our relationships. We're so dependent upon something else that it's inextricably related to this fact that we are in need of other things and other people, and especially dependent upon God. But God is uh, an anomaly in all of this. He's totally independent of his creation. He exists of his own accord. He has no beginning. He has no end. He wasn't born. He has just been the self-existent one. He survives upon his own. He's complete upon his own. In fact, in the Trinity, in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is perfect unity, perfect joy, perfect peace. All of these things exist within God himself. God is, Acts 17, 25 tells us, God is not served by human hands. God doesn't need anything you got, right? Uh, and, and that's not a bailout for stopping giving your tithes and offerings, okay, Brian? Uh, you keep giving those things, right? Um, he, he provides for us through things, even Jesus who could have made the fish and the loaves out of nothing, uh, relied upon the little boy who brought in faith this act of, of sacrifice and broke it for the multitudes to be fed. God's looking for sacrifice on our parts. But at the same time, he doesn't need anything as if he's served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives men life and breath and everything else. If you've got it, it came from God, and it's worthy of thanking him for the theological word for this is transcendence. Uh, the word transcendent means he exists above and independent from all else. He, he's really risen above everything and everyone. He's the only truly transcendent being in existence. The Lord God Almighty made all things, yet he exists above and independent or separate from them all. God doesn't need water. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need sunshine. He doesn't need earth. He doesn't need people, but he chooses to bring people to himself. All things are upheld, as Hebrews 1 says, by his mighty power, yet he is upheld by himself alone. The whole universe exists in him and for him that he may receive glory and honor and praise. That's our God, completely independent, but yet so welcoming. Yet God continuously seeks to reveal himself to his creation. The unknown seeks to be known, to be loved, to be honored, to be praised. Uh, his ways are so unsearchable, and even on our own, apart from God, we can't understand him or experience him personally. There's no way any man, they tried this once with the Tower of Babel, can bring themselves to God. God thwarted those plans. He does our own plans. There's no way through mysticism or hard work or effort or anything else that we make ourselves know God apart from him revealing himself to us. And so we wouldn't know anything about God unless he had given us that insight. And he gives it mostly through his word. Uh, Romans 11.33 says that... Uh, 1133 through 36, and this is really how God wants us to seek to know him. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's a, it's a bottomless well. It's a fountain that never stops bubbling over. How unsearchable his judgments. Who are we to question his judgments? His paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? That's a huge question. Who has been God's counselor. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him is the glory forever. I think a lot of times as believers, we try to bargain with God. God, if you'll give me this, I'll do this for you. Or God, if you'll uh, help me here, I'll make sure later down the road to repay you. But it's not karma, okay? This is a God who sees and wants and loves and knows us. He expects us to draw near to him so that he may draw near to us. And there's blessing in this. Yet, we can't understand all of the ways that he does. We want to put everything about God into somebody that we love. Who, who's the most perfect person that you ever knew? Your mom, your grandma, your dad, your grandfather, uh, maybe somebody else, maybe a pastor or preacher or some saint somewhere along the way. And, and you want to think about them in terms of God. But God is so much higher than them that it's not even comparable. Even though God doesn't need us, the beautiful thing about living this Christian life is that he wants you and I. He doesn't depend upon us. Listen, guys, if I died, if this entire church died, God would still go on being God. Now, we would get to be with him, which is the glorious part. We need him so much more infinitely than he needs us. God's love for you is so great. I think that we see it best in his son, Jesus. When you study the scriptures, when you break them apart, when you ingest them and meditate on them, and you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. It's the most perfect example that any of us have. If we want to grow deeper in our understanding and intimacy with God, we study Jesus Christ. And so it's Jesus who broke down the barriers of sin and separation to draw us back into a close personal relationship with God. We see God not only choosing to draw near to us, but even more than that, guys, he wants to come within us through his spirit, to seal us with his spirit, to invest in us his very essence so that we are living, walking, breathing, talking temples of the holy God. This is the miracle of God's transcendence. He doesn't have to have us, but he wants us. He loves us, he keeps us, he provides for us, and he brings us to himself. How many times have we been disinterested in God? How many times have we wanted to divorce ourselves from God? How many times have we cried out, I don't believe that there is a God? And yet God still loves you through that and continues to provide for you. And so God is independent, and that's an important thing to know about his character. Secondly, God is holy. I wanted to read a definition of what holy is to you. Um, because I think we could all try to define it in a certain way, but we sing this morning, holy, holy, holy. But what does holy mean? And I think we have an idea. Um, but uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary, okay, says holy means exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness divinity devoted entirely to the work of a deity a holy temple or holy prophets holy's definition is sacredness authoritative consecrated as moses encountered the burning bush and he took his shoes off there because it was holy ground he knew that where he was, he was unworthy to be. And that's the sense of this. It's just God's worthiness when you think about holiness. And so God is holy. 
The holiness of God, I think, is probably one of the most difficult for me or anyone to try to explain because it's one of his essential attributes. You can't, you can't uh, dissociate or dissect God from his holiness. It's who he is. God is holy. Holy is God. And so we don't understand it so much because we're not born holy. We don't come by birth and have this sacredness and this consecration. We're just, we're just not. We're, it's something kind of foreign to us. In fact, the only way that we experience holiness is by it being given to us through Jesus. It has to be uh, 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 allowed into us or uh, imputed to us. We're created in God's image. And you think about this as human beings, uh, more so as Christians. What are some of the attributes that we as believers share with God or that we can share with God? Maybe, and, and, and probably so to a much lesser degree, but we can know love. We can know um, things like joy, mercy, grace, faithfulness, peace. There are, there are a lot of things. In fact, you look at the list of the, the fruit of the Spirit, and those are the things that God is creating within us. But His holiness must come from Him. We only become holy in relationship to Jesus. It's only in Jesus that you become the righteousness of God. Listen, guys, in your own power, under, apart from Jesus, born uh, of flesh, we have inherited a sin nature. And you may think, well, there's no baby that's bad. Uh, uh, we grow up in flesh. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sin, not sick, not like we need to be revived. We need to be resurrected. We need to be given new life, and that new life only comes through Jesus. And I know that this, this sermon, even in itself, is a little heavier than um, some of the others will be, but it's important to understand. The only way that we come to know Jesus, as Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, is that you must be born again. You must be born from above Nicodemus says, what do we uh, enter again into our mother's womb and we're reborn? And he says, no, spirit is what I'm talking about. You're already born in the flesh, but you must be born of the spirit. And so this is part of the holiness that God is giving us. God's holiness separates him from everything else. It makes him distinct. His holiness includes his perfection and his sinless purity. He is perfect. He is sinless. He is pure. But it's even more than that. And there's no other word. I come up with the word otherness because I can't explain it and I don't know how. God's holiness um, is a mystery to us. He's awesome. We wonder at him. Uh, we try to comprehend and grasp just a little bit of his majesty. The third this morning is God is sovereign. And this is so important because we throw around the word sovereign and sovereignty so often, and there's so many different camps in religious circles today. There's churches meeting this morning that say man's will is greater than God's sovereignty. There's churches that are meeting this morning that say God's sovereignty supersedes anything, and man has no say in anything at all. And there's such a difference in Christendom about this idea of sovereignty. Um, do we make God save us? No, we don't. Is our freedom of the will greater than God's freedom to impose upon us His will? I don't think so. Are we just puppets 
that God is absolutely guarding and guiding, and even the things that we think we're choosing, God is making us choose them. Man, there's so many things that you could think of, but I want to try to explain sovereignty to you this morning because this is what God is like. God is sovereign. It means that he's preeminent, that he holds all eminence and authority and power. He is the ruler of the universe. Nothing, and I know there's going to be some questions, some theological questions in this that you might have to grapple with and deal with and dig deeper into Scripture, but nothing in this universe happens without God's permission. Do you believe that? We don't like it a lot of times because just as we're praying for Max McCann, we know that there's a couple of options. Healing, God could deliver Max through healing, or God could deliver Max through bringing him with him. And that's a scary proposition for us who want Max here. But whatever happens is permissive will of God. If we say that he's in complete control of everything, we must believe that the things that are bad that are happening are at least allowed, at the very least, by God. And we, we grapple with that, and we think, well, God wouldn't allow anything bad. No, God is holy. But there are things that occur in our lives. Look back at your checkered past. Look back at your history. Think about the things that you've done, the poor choices you've made, uh, the bad decisions, the disobedience, um, the evil things that you may have done in the past. And how God used those, as Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, to work all things, even the bad stuff, together for good. So God is in this practice of working out his redemptive purposes. He's taking, he's taking the horrible things, the wars, the murders, the abuse, the civil unrest, the injustice. And yes, they're horrible. God still has a plan through those things. And he's bringing them together for the overall scheme. The big puzzles put together with God's sovereign redemptive purpose in mind that it's going to ultimately work out for good. His good and your good. And we don't get all of that. Listen, truly, trust me, I've prayed so many times. <laughs> I did a funeral for a baby one time, and it was of a sweet friend of mine. Nobody in this world wants a baby to die, and you can't understand why that happens, all right? And, and just the thought even now of seeing this tiny little casket, um, man, it's, it's bad, right? This couple's first child, and you don't understand it. Yet you look at them today, and they've got two healthy children. And it doesn't replace the baby that was lost. But even in the midst of that, God still heard prayers. God still was caring for his children. He was providing. He had a plan in place that there would be great grace given and offered to them. And so we think, man, this life is full of bad, but it's also so full of good. Sometimes it's the bad things that help us to appreciate the good things. Help us to praise God for his mercy and grace. And I can't even begin to explain it all. But we do believe that nothing in this universe occurs without God's permission. He has the power and the knowledge to prevent anything he chooses. So anything that does happen must, at the very least, be allowed by God. And you've got to reckon with this, guys, because I'm not saying this is a Sunday morning sermon where you just get it. You've got to chew on this, and you may be chewing on it for months or years. At the same time, God offers humanity choices. He holds us personally responsible for our sin, and he is unhappy with some of the decisions and actions that we choose. 
The fact that sin exists at all in this world proves that not all things that occur are the direct actions of a holy God. And here's what I mean. You can choose to disbelieve God this morning. You can choose to say that he's a fantasy, he's, um, he's not real, that he, he can't help, that he doesn't hear, that he's a, f- a figment of our imagination, that he's a crutch that weak people use to get through life. I'm not weak in the sense that I believe in God. I am strong because his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Joyce McCann isn't weak this morning. When she has the prayer of the saints and such a great cloud of witnesses surround her and the King of Kings, Jesus himself, is interceding on her behalf, that is strength that on our own flesh we have no chance of discovering. And so those who don't believe in God are the foolish ones. And that's what Scripture says. They're missing everything in life that they could possibly tap into. And yeah, you can't see it. I think I said at the beginning of this message, this series, that science, archaeology, history, all prove the points that God exists. Humanity has interjected his own hypotheses and and ideas to try to disprove it. But man, he can't. There's never been a word in Scripture that has been disproven by man. And there can't be. Not when it's the Word of God, the very voice of God. And so... Um, sin exists. We know that. We see that. And it proves that not everything is God's fault. We want to throw it back in his face and wave our fist in his face and say, why'd you do this, God? Where were you, God? Why weren't you here, God? Why didn't you listen to me, God? Why didn't you step in, God? Why didn't you save those people? Why did that tsunami come? Why did that earthquake happen? Why did that tornado or that hurricane occur? God, are you really sovereign? And we have to admit that fundamentally from the fall of creation, everything began to disintegrate. The human being's choices began to cause and pave a path that was crooked and downhill. And we got further and further and further from God the more we relied upon our own selves. The reality of human free will and accountability sets this boundary for God's sovereign control over the universe. There's a point where God chooses to allow things that he does not directly cause. You may choose to walk away from God. God didn't cause that. He doesn't want you to walk away from him, but you may choose to. God being sovereign means that he has the power, the wisdom, and the authority to do anything he chooses within and with his creation. Now, whether or not God actually exerts that level of control over every circumstance is a different question. It's not because he's asleep. It's not because he's ignorant. It's not because he doesn't see. But sometimes he allows the prodigal to take his money and run away from home. And God has a greater plan in that, doesn't he? Sometimes he allows his child to weep over their sin and there doesn't seem to be solace or comfort. But he has a promise that the sun will rise the next morning and that his mercies will be made new. And it is difficult to put these things together, especially with a weak understanding of Scripture and who God is. And that's why we want to know what He's really like. I think a lot of times we try to oversimplify sovereignty. We assume that if God isn't uh, directly doing something or driving some event, then He must somehow not be sovereign. The immature understanding of sovereignty shows a God who must do anything that He can do 
or he's not sovereign. But that's not true. Um, I can do a lot of things. You can too. But must I do all of those things? No. Just because I do not choose to act on certain things that I can do does not take away righteousness or power or control, nor does it take it away from God. Now, his ways are beyond understanding. Scripture's told us that. We can't understand the way that he thinks or works, but we also know that even our greatest intellect is as stupidity compared to God's wisdom. We don't get it because we can't see years and decades and centuries and eternity into the future. And we've got to admit that we're fallible, that we're microscopic in the grand scheme of things, and that he knows what he's doing. And that involves faith. Now, here's an example that maybe helps bring it down to earth. It's, a Im- it's an imperfect example, I know. But consider you have a bowl on a table, and you have an ant. Uh, not like an ant and uncle, but like, you know, an insect ant, okay? Because you don't want to put your ant in a bowl. You want to put an ant in a bowl. Um, now, if you put the ant in the bowl, your sovereignty or your control over the ant, nobody can doubt that. That ant is at your mercy, correct? And that ant could crawl out of the bowl, and you could let it crawl out of the bowl. You could crush that ant. You could drown that ant. You could pick the ant out and take it back outside. You could do anything you wanted to with the ant. But you're not forced just because the little ant's trying to crawl out of the bowl, you're not forced to kill it or destroy it or cause it pain or to tear its legs off or to make it injured in any way. You don't have to do that. For your own reasons, you may choose to let that ant crawl away, but you're still in control of what the ant does. There's a difference between allowing the ant to crawl out of the bowl and helplessly watching it escape without being able to do anything. I think this immature understanding of God's sovereignty really implies that if man is not actively holding the ant inside the bowl, then he must be unable to keep the ant in there at all. When the man who is in control of the ant or the God who is in control of all things can allow anything he desires and yet still be completely in control of all things, he can allow you to ruin your life. He can allow you to uh, watch pornography or inject your body with dangerous substances. He can allow you to, to beat your children and your wife. He can allow you to go and commit crimes. That is not what God wants, and never confuse that. We choose, out of the evil within our own hearts, to do things that displease God and grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, that little um, parallelism about the man and the ant Uh, shows us a couple of things. God has the ability to do anything. God can take action. He could intervene in any situation, but he often chooses to act indirectly. What does that mean? For his own reasons that we can't fully understand, he allows certain things to happen. But whether it is us going with God's will or us going against God's will, the crazy thing about it is God's will is always done. He'll always bring it to a neat completion with a bow on top. He'll make his plans happen, whether through disobedience or obedience. Look at Pharaoh with Moses and the Israelites. Even though Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go, what happened ultimately? The Israelites were freed. Isn't that what God wanted for his people? 
You can't thwart God. You can't put him under your thumb. You can't put him in a box. He is in control. And so um, everything that happens is at minimal the result of God's permissive will, and it holds true even if specific things aren't the way we might want or prefer in this life. God's will will be done. That's why it's imperative that we pray, God, I pray that your will be done, and I also pray that you give me peace with whatever your will is so that I can understand how good you are and that you still love me. The last thing we say this morning is that God is just. Um, you know, a lot of people decry God as being a tyrant, as being evil, as being unfair to people. I don't understand people's actions and behaviors. You can't understand people's actions and behaviors apart from uh, the inherent nature of sin. But God is perfectly righteous in his treatment of his creatures. We know that he made us. Guys, without us, we wouldn't even have a life to gripe about. Without us, we wouldn't have blessings at all. Without us, we would be miserable if we even existed. God is just in meeting out punishments and in meeting out rewards. And we think, why do they have it so much better? Why do they have that job? Why do they have that house? Why are their kids uh, so perfectly behaving? Why do they look like that? Why don't I have those things? And we begin to question, ultimately we're questioning God's goodness when we begin to look at other people and compare our lives. And uh, we've said this many times before, but two bad things happen when we begin to look at ourselves as above somebody else. We begin to put ourselves as little g-gods and look down on others and judge them. But also, when we look at ourselves as underneath people, and we think, I covet what they have, I'm jealous of them, I want what they have, and we, we find this dangerous boundary. Both are idolatry, by the way, because we're beginning to look at God as unfair and unjust, and He's not. Listen to Hebrews 6.10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. Now, I want you to pick out something here for just a second. God is equating the fact that if you help his people and love them and serve them, that you're also helping him, loving him, or loving him, okay? I said that wrong. But the what you do unto others, you do unto me, is basically the premise here. But it also says that the things that you do, the awana work, the study, the phone calls, the prayers, the endless time that you take with people, the picking up trash, the watching the babies, the going and delivering things and checking on the elderly, checking on those who are shut in and sick, caring for as a mother your children in your own home and, and making sure that they're provided for as men, that there's protection and provision for your home, the little things, the closet prayers, the stuff that nobody sees, the hidden works, all the things that are done in secret, God sees them and you will be rewarded for them. He is faithful to make that happen. But it also says that God is equally just in meeting out punishments. Listen to Colossians 3.25. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. In other words, we're all on equal standing with this. If we continue to pursue wrong, if we continue to be unrepentant and do things that we know displease God and grieve the Spirit and harm ourselves, we will suffer consequences for those decisions. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, 
There is, we're talking about the justness or the justice of God. God's justice could not overlook that sin. It just couldn't happen, guys. This is where it all stemmed from. This is really the genesis of why people act the way they do today. Adam and Eve's crime doesn't seem, I think, so great to us as their descendants. But look at it from heaven's perspective. God Almighty, the ruler of everything, the Lord of angel armies, the one who is worthy of all praise and worship, has been defied by the very dust he formed into man and woman. Now, which is unfair? God's punishment of them or their action towards the God who graciously gave them everything? God had made these creatures, this man and this woman, for his own purpose, for his own pleasure. He showered love and blessing on them. He gave them food. He gave them purpose. He gave them meaning, safety, sanctity, security, provision. Everything was provided by God. But he also gave them free will. So he showed them their options and told them the consequences. And guys, there should be nobody ignorant in this room this morning. You know that if you choose to forsake Jesus Christ as Savior, what the consequences will be, and they will be eternal. Please don't, God said, that pleading warned them of what he knew would happen if they disobeyed. We will do as we please, was the creation's reply to the creator. And at that moment, the, creator com- the creature committed high treason against the creator. Now, God's justice demands action. For God to overlook or excuse treason would not be just. Bear with me for this last part. Because God is just, He cannot make a rule, establish the penalty, and then not follow through when that law is broken. I think about that as a parent, and I think how many times I say, I'm going to spank you, and I never do it, and they keep doing the same thing. Be true to your word is kind of a lesson here. Because God is also love, get this, because God's just, He has to carry through with what he said he was going to carry through with. That's just him being honest. But because God is love, he had a way to satisfy justice without destroying us. Is that not incredible? Justice required the death penalty for high treason, so something, someone had to die. We know in Adam and Eve's case that God took an innocent animal and that he killed it and put the hides over them because they were ashamed of their nakedness And he even saw that need and he provided for them. Something had to die for their poor poor decisions, their mistakes, their sin. Thousands of years later, and I put this stuff on the screen so you wouldn't miss it because this is really the meat of the message. Thousands of years later, justice was forever satisfied when God sent his only begotten son into the world to be our substitute. No longer did we have to have a sacrificial system where goats or doves or rams or sheep or anything else was laid out on the altar in its bloodshed. Jesus would become the ultimate perfect lamb of God. And so God can't merely overlook our treason. Listen, if something was so valuable that God would send Jesus out of heaven to come to earth and to die that miserable sinner's death on the cross, it is big. God's only begotten son, the most perfect, innocent, pure, holy, wonderful, incredible being came to earth to take your junk and my junk and make us right with God. It doesn't seem fair. 
So Jesus became the lamb God sacrificed on the altar of justice. Christ died for sins once for all. Now notice that. He only died once, right? He's not still up on the cross. The just for the unjust. That means the, wicked, the, uh, the perfect for the wicked. The holy for the unholy. The righteous for the unrighteous. So that Jesus might bring us to God. Because justice has been satisfied, God pronounces not guilty upon you and me. Today we stand before God if Jesus is our covering, if Jesus is our sacrifice, as righteous in His sight. Pure, forgiven, loved, children of God, those who are destined for heaven, sealed with the Spirit, we belong to Him, and nothing and no one can take that away. The question is, are you in Christ? Have you called upon His name in faith, as John 1.12 talks about? Justice commands, God's justice commands that once a sin has been paid for, it cannot be brought up again. And yet Satan's always taking you for the stuff you did in your past. And he's saying, come here, come here, come here. And he's grabbing us by the collar and he's taking us before God. Do you know what they did today? You still love this one? You still care? You, you're still saying that Jesus' blood is good for this one? And he's always making condemnation and accusation against us. You're always being brought forth. Satan's always whispering in your ear, but you did that. You're unworthy. Why pray for forgiveness again? And yet, this is what God says. It won't be brought up again. It won't be paid for again. When our sins are under the blood of Jesus' sacrifice, God holds them against us no more. Romans 8.1 God remains just. God isn't violating His own code of justice by pardoning those who deserve its consequences. Here's the deal, guys. Every single one of us deserve death. Not only physical, but spiritual. Every single one of us deserve hell. And you'd be like, no, 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 you don't know me. I'm really good. And no, you're not. Salvation becomes the just consequence for God because God has pronounced Jesus' death and resurrection sufficient to satisfy His wrath. His justice is paid because Jesus the innocent gave his life for you and me the guilty and we're forgiven and set free. We no longer have to live like we're captives, that we're in darkness, that we're forsaken, that we're maimed and crippled through this life. We don't have to live that way anymore. The curse of the law that we justly deserved has been taken by Jesus on the cross. And so God is love. And everybody wants to say that. And he is. Even atheists will say, but isn't your God love? And they're right. But nobody wants to admit that God is also just. And yet his justice is efficacious. It's real. It's true because of his love for you. Without justice, guys, I don't know what this world would look like. Sin would run rampant. It would go unchecked. Evil would win. There are places in the Old Testament where people were killing their own children to eat them because they had no food to eat. That's the kind of world we're talking about. Without God's goodness and justness and justice at play, without His love being present, without the church here, without His ambassadors and emissaries of mercy and grace here, this world would not be recognizable. Evil would win. There would be no reward for your obedience. We could not ever respect a God who was not just. 
We want him to be just. Steve Whitehead a couple of weeks ago shared this verse with me, and it's really lingered in my head. Micah 6.8. It's the top three qualities God wants to see reflected in you. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. That's number one. That's a big deal. To be like God. To be fair and equitable and honest and full of truth. To love mercy. And finally, to walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's God's desire for you to live a holy life that proves that he is just and good to a world that doesn't understand that. I know we could go on and on and on. We could talk about God's perfection, his omnipotence, countless other characteristics. But guys, the the truth is that God performs wonders and miracles on a day-by-day, on a moment-by-moment basis across the universe that we can't even begin to understand. We're not privy to those things. The news sure isn't covering those things. We don't know what he's doing in others' lives right now or what he will do tomorrow. Miracles that cannot be explained or even added up. And the truth of all of this is what is God like? God is knowable. He is real. He loves you more than anyone ever has, ever will, or ever could love you. And you may think, man, you don't know how loved I am by my mama. Mama? My mama was going to be here this morning. I was going to say that. God loves me more. And she knows that. God invites you to get to know him. Close with this scripture. This is the last thing, James 4, 7 through 10. And this word that it begins with is probably one of the most paramount words that you need to remember from this morning. Submit. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A lot of times we just take that latter part of that verse and we say, if you in your own power and strength will just resist the devil, if you'll be strong enough, if you'll be courageous enough, if you'll be bold enough, if you'll say no to sin enough, the devil will flee from you, but it can't happen unless there's first submission to God because you're not strong enough without God's help. Then next, look, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Listen, you can't even draw near to God without submission to God because there's no entrance and allowance to his throne room. And so it requires submission. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And there's things here that we don't like about grieving and mourning and weeping, but what he's saying is this. Let there be sadness over your sin instead of laughter. Man, there's so much frivolity in life. I like to joke. We love sarcasm. You know, we want easy things. But guys, there comes a point where we have to get serious about sin, and we can't laugh it off. We can't explain it off. We can't reason it off. We can't point fingers and blame it on somebody else. We have to get real with our own sin. Let there be gloom instead of joy. He's asking for a broken and contrite heart is what God's asking for. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Submission leads to exaltation. 
What is God like? He's a God that will lift you up so high to bring you to himself, hold you in his arms, call you his child, where you can call him your Abba. And he will take care of you, protect you, provide for you, inscribe your name on his hand, write your name in the Lamb's book of life, give you eternity and security and a spirit that's sealed within you until the day of redemption. And then he will be with you always in his presence. My goodness, guys, that's our God. In a word, wonderful. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I, I, I just pray that everybody here knows you. And they don't just know you in some kind of a, uh, a mental exercise, that there's a God, there's a creator, there's a one, there's a being above all. But instead we know you as this God. The God who's personal, the God who's one, the God who's spirit, the God who is eternal, the God who is independent, the God who is holy, the God who is just, Lord, that you are a good God. Lord, we're each going through our little battles right now in life, and most of us don't know each other's. But you know, you see, you feel, you care. And I pray, God, that this morning, Lord, each one of us would turn over to you, that we would submit and surrender and humbly fall before you as we get to know you better. Father, we love you. We proclaim our love for you as your church. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus. He's not just the Savior of this church and this world, but he's my Savior. He's Jennifer's Savior. He's Gene's Savior. He's Monica's Savior. He's Bill's Savior. He's ours, and we are yours. Pray this morning, God, that you would see us, love us, help us through our doubt and our disbelief, and draw us closer to yourself. And if there's anybody that needs to make a decision this morning, God, whether they do it at their pew, whether they do it at the altar, whether they do it at their home, Lord God, that they would make that decision to trust you more, to submit to you. Lord, we pray for the exaltation of your people, of your word, of your spirit, of your son. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.